This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Recovery Radio. My name is Steve Martoreno. We are here, sponsored by Retreat Behavioral Health, uh, talking about well, the issue of behavioral health, special attention to substance abuse and treatment, but as we now know, this is sort of the golden age for a crisis in the, the nation's mental health. In particular, our young people are taking it on the chin pretty tough around this issue. To that end, uh, Retreat in their West Palm Beach facility is going to hold a panel discussion July 24th in the West Palm area. Those of you down there, um, if you can make it, they'd love to see you. Open to the public starts at 6 o'clock. We've been featuring panelists who are going to be on that uh, in that group, the topic of which is mental health crisis protecting our youth. So we, we have with us uh, someone we, we've been looking forward to talking to for a while now. His name is Cameron Casey. Cameron is, uh, well, he, he, he will bristle at the word activist, but he is certainly uh, a spokesperson and an advocate uh, against the kind of uh, pressures and uh, violence that a lot of young people and the rest of us are also facing this day. He is uh, notable, among other things, for having led, organized the March for Our Lives. That was the student protest on March of uh, 2018. Uh, Casey is a survivor of the February 2018 uh, shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Uh, Casey Cameron, uh, Cameron Casey, thanks for joining us on Recovery Radio. Thanks for having me. Did I, did I get did I get it right about your uh, your uh, sensitive not sensitivity but issue with throwing around the term activist? Um, you know, I I just think that a lot of people will call themselves activists for tweeting about something or, or going to an event. And I think, you know, that kind of undermines what activism really has always been, which was putting putting a lot on the line to advocate for something you believe in. You know, you you, you look at the, the good old days back before my ugly mug was roaming the streets, back when activism was people, you know, being ready to be beaten by the police for what they believe in, people going out and, you know, protesting the war, advocating for for equal rights. And that that still happens today, but you know, I, I I stand in front of a camera and tell people that gun control is good. So if you want to call that an activist, yeah, yeah. here I am. Well, no, you know what? Uh, that's a sharp uh, that's a sharp insight. That really is because you're right. I mean, uh, prior to the uh, c- connectivity that we all now <laughs> uh, benefit from, uh, yeah, you had to stuff envelopes, you had to leave your house, you had to make phone calls, you had to shake, you know, you had to go meet people. As you correctly point out, sometimes you had to put your uh, your body in the way of uh, of violence to be an activist now and you're right anybody with a with a smartphone and a hashtag can spout off about anything and that doesn't make you an advocate Uh, yeah and it's like you know once our society in the in the past you know decade or so became so unbelievably narcissistic due to social media uh, you know a lot of you, you you've been able to see a lot of that reflect in in every walk of life, including activism. Because once you started to be able to make a name for yourself out of activism, once people started going on speaking tours and putting out books because of their activism, a lot of people said, okay, you know, this is a field of business now. This is somewhere where you can actually work and your job can be this. You know, you can be an activist working out of an office. And I think that I think that the word activist has maybe six definitions at this point. I, I agree with you. Let, let's talk a little bit about who you are. Where were you? Where were you born and raised, and all of that? 
So I tell my Los Angeles friends I was born in Hollywood, and that's because I was born in Hollywood, but I was born in Hollywood, Florida. So, I, you know, it's a lie of omission, but it's not too bad. Um, I'm born and raised in South Florida. Never really left the state much other than for camp and, and you know, certain things in my family. But I really grew up in that Broward, West Palm, Miami-Dade County area. Like, I, I almost never left that that group of counties. I, I, I lived in Boca Raton, lived the average white Jewish child in Boca Raton's early childhood mm. of, you know, not really having any actual exposure to the, you know, problems and actual, you know, realities of the world. I lived in Boca Raton. Boca Raton is a fantasy constructed by people with money. You know, that's not the real world. Well, we, we um, you know, we all, live in our, we all live in our own bubbles. Yours sounds, as you just described it, particularly well insulated and um, safe, which makes... What I mean, ha- I went to Pinecrest. Pinecrest is, a, is just like, you know, it's a, it's a well-insulated bubble that people pay a lot of money to keep well-insulated. Well, you know, I, would, I, I was uh, thinking about making the point that you... you this bubble of yours and your classmates and friends was shattered by the sh- by the shooting in February of 2018. I was hesitant to make the point that, and it is true that it's, it is a rare thing, but it is not as rare as it ought to be. Um, Our so, community is a very very bizarre place right now. Um, as a result of the sh- as a result of the shooting, or just in general. <laughs> Um, no, definitely. I mean, as a result of the shooting, before the shooting, we were just uh, a, a city in South Florida that had, you know, 14 some odd thousand people in there. We we did our thing. We minded our own business. And we, you know, just existed shrouded in our privilege. And, um, and suddenly Parkland became a city that people hear the name of and, and think about a bunch of people being killed. And that changes a city's identity, as I'm sure anyone could imagine. And it's weird. Parkland feels like a regular town with this incredibly, you know, dark and sinister looming force behind it. And that's, but that's only because, I don't know, I surround myself with situations related to the tragedy very often. Parkland's a beautiful city filled with beautiful people who, you know, have a, a smile a lot, do a lot of great things. It's just, this, I mean, the, the city will never be the same. It, it will continue to be the place where people got killed. Yeah, bad thing that happened in a nice place. It's becoming more and more common. Um, I don't want to, um, again, I don't expect you to come on this program and satisfy anybody's period interest with the details about what happened that day, but you, how do you recall that morning as you were getting ready for school? Was it as ordinary a morning as any other? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a story I think a lot of people tell the day of a horrible tragedy, which was, I had the conscious thought that everything was going too well. I hear a lot of people say that about different things. I've talked to a lot of different survivors, a lot of different things. One of the, one of the most frequent little anecdotes I hear pop up is, you know what, I thought that day everything was going well too well. And? And, um, and then it certainly didn't. <laughs> um, it was Valentine's Day, you know, I had a, I had a girl on my mind, I was reading reading my book i was just kind of relaxing as everything began to unfold well it was it was really a nothing day for me yeah 
so um, I'm a little it conf- like one. I'm a little confused. Did you? Did you? Are you saying that you also had that feeling of a little anxiety or or sense that things were not going to go well or weren't going well? Is that what you said? No, uh, no. I actually I thought that everything was going exceedingly well. Yeah. In the aftermath of the shooting, um, can you can you? Could you characterize the difference, if there was one, between the attitude of the students and the survivors and their parents and the adult community in general? Were they in sync in terms of their reaction, or was there a disconnect? Do you, do you remember the, any of that? I think there was a, a natural disconnect because, I mean, that's just what a generational gap is. I think that a lot of the parents were shell-shocked and, and, and frightened pretty pretty irrefutably so and um and the kids were all over the place <laughs> i mean I, I wish i could assign one emotion or trait or adjective to how the kids were feeling but you know i'm sure i'm sure you understand that's impossible and i think that a lot of people's relationships with their parents changed for the better some for the worse but um you know it, the dialogue but the intergenerational dialogue was always going to be weird because there's this there's this dumb, absolutely boneheaded narrative that and that I pushed before, mind you, that um what was I gonna say? The difference between that the adults yeah. that, that this is only because the adults failed us. Right, right. That that, you know, everybody uh talk, they're talking about how um uh, it's really just because the adults failed us, and I think it, I think that's just the most bizarre and stupid thing in the entire world, because you know, it's 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 not it's not a generational thing. People don't just grow into being an adult and then instantly decide not to care. It's an apathy thing. It's a money thing. It's a political. This is all a political issue. That's it's interesting. Issue. Yeah, that's interesting. So so. The, the the adult reaction uh, was, you know, shock and horror, uh, maybe a little guilt. And the young people initially were looking to blame somebody, and it was that the establishment or the older people hadn't taken care of them or protected them. So that changed for you, and you think there's enough blame about this kind of issue, violence, to spread across generations. Is that right? Yeah, I think that the the generational gap was very, very... It just, just made it very, if anything, awkward and nothing else. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let me ask you about your uh, the the immediate aftermath of the uh, shooting at, at uh, Parkland. And the, when you guys came together to, to try to do something, uh, what when how did that happen? And what was I mean, the motivation should be obvious. But what were you guys thinking at the time? We were thinking, you know. We got to. What if? What if we could stop one of these from happening again? And we were convinced we could. We could make a, a huge change. We told ourselves, you know, we can. We can really change the whole country here, and we can stop these, and we can make it so no other community has to see one of these again. And those thoughts overcome us. You know, they they became our entire being. They became our driving force for everything. So you know. We we, uh, we just kept on moving, kept on moving forward, thinking nothing but, you know, what if, what if we can make this the last one? 
Cameron Casey is our guest. He uh, he will be a panelist on uh, the mental health crisis panel that's going to take place in West Palm uh, next month for retreat behavioral health. He is a uh, survivor of the mass shooting at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School. And as you can hear, it has uh, changed his life. It should have changed all of us as well. We have more with Cameron straight ahead. This is Recovery Radio. Don't go away. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. We are on the phone with Cameron Casey, um, advocate, spokesperson, a young fellow who um, unfortunately uh, went through a a pretty miserable and horrible experience in his high school career, the mass shooting at uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Uh, It has shaped him in ways that uh, should not surprise any of us. He is with us because he's going to be on a panel in South Florida that we've been talking about, which deals, interestingly enough, not with what you might imagine, which is directly, you know, gun violence or, 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 or gun laws, but the mental health crisis that's going on across the board in this country, having profound uh, impact on young people. That's one of the reasons we have him on the show today to talk about the panel and the pressures on young people today. Cameron, you, you, uh, you mentioned before the break that in the aftermath of that sh- the shooting uh, and the fact that you you were a group so some of the survivors uh, the people that you came together with uh, had the you know they had this terrific uh, horrible common experience but they were also incredibly passionate and most importantly very very articulate so it was a very powerful and there's no other way to put this media moment for you guys and before the break you talked about you, you all felt that this was it you you then could come together and change the world. Is that is that fair to say? It's a very it's a very powerful force, adrenaline, you know. And the way everything was moving and the way that our conversations about all this were were forming and the way the whole country was starting to look over at this movement that we had started, the the way the adrenaline affected us, we thought, you know what, we can stop mass shootings here. The spotlight fell on you. I mean, I know this is this is going to sound absurd, but but it's it fell on you the way it falls on you know pop stars and and athletes and um, and 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 that glare can be deceiving, correct? Absolutely. I mean, we really thought we could do, it. and you know what? A lot of people from the organization are still well on their way, still expanding, still fighting this good fight. But we thought we could do it much quicker than we could. And that's fine, because change takes a while. It's a country that doesn't move that fast. And, you know, heaven knows what's ahead of us. But all I know is that there's a lot of people from the march who are, who are still going to be there advocating for what, what I think my whole group has always been able to get behind. The march you're talking about is the uh, March for Our Lives, which was held nationwide, uh, the focal point of which was in the nation's capital in March of 2018. Um, how did that come together with you guys? Um, I, I, you know, the march was the result of us saying, "Okay, great." You know, we've been able to reach everybody in their homes. The whole country is looking at us, looking out of their homes, and to take it to their streets and say, "Hey, you know that you know how you see these kids advocating for change. We are advocating for the same thing. Some of us have been doing it for longer." Some of us have been doing it our entire lives. We're all going to come out and stand here and, and, and tell you we're behind this. You know, we're going to show up. We're not. It, it was. Be, it, it's. It's what I said about current activism. We took it. To, we took it. We made. We made it as close to real as we could. 
this wasn't about tweets anymore. This wasn't about people sitting around and saying, oh boy, I do feel bad. You know, I've got kids. Maybe there could be my kids. No, we got people to show up in the streets and become part of a large physical display of how many people are willing to demand a change. So let me ask you where you're, I understand uh, the mere fact that you're on the program here and that you're still, you know, you're going to be on the panel talking about mental health crisis. I mean, I don't mean to characterize your current state of mind as changed or more realistic, but it, there has been, a, you could use, you could use problematic too. I wouldn't judge you. Right? There, there is obviously a change in the enthusiasm and the, just the clarity that you, you had in the aftermath of the shooting, and where you are today. So, where are you today with, with regard to, you know, what what you, physically? Yeah, what you know, what what do you need to do? What do you think you now need to do, or we need to do? What's changed in oh, your thinking? I didn't know if you meant where, where's my physical location. I'm 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 right by, you know, <laughs> no. I'm right by Lincoln Park. Um, what's it called? I forget. I'm still learning New York. Right Lincoln Center is what you're probably near. I was about to say Lincoln Park, which is the name of a band that was very popular in like 2008. Well, um, yes, I'm right by Lincoln Center. It's beautiful out here. Uh, where am I in regards to the movement? I think that you know we got a big election coming up, and I think that the 2020, the, pardon me, the 2018 midterms showed many wonderfully promising things and many you know, gave us a lot of hope for what the next couple of elections will hold and what the, you know, the future of our country will be. Cause I do think the next 20 years are going to be unbelievably influential to our American identity for the next, for, for the foreseeable future. I think we are at a point right now where we have a lot of roads we can take and almost every single one of them is the wrong one. I, I related to this scene in, in Avengers Infinity War. The, this character played by Benedict Cumberbatch, Doctor Strange, he tells the, the main superhero, Iron Man, he says, you know, I've looked into every possible outcome. I've looked into the future. I've looked into billions and billions of them. And Iron Man says, well, how many of them does everything go well? Doctor Strange says, one. I think that the next the next couple of years are going to be where we decide where we want to go. Yeah. Do we want to become... A right-wing, weird, and awful cesspool like Europe. Do we want to become a country that overextends its government? A country that offers nothing to the people who need it? This is—I think this is going to be where we decide. So right now, where I am is I am patiently watching the 2020 election, watching certain candidates that I have respected completely embarrass themselves like they're troglodytes, and watching candidates I didn't believe in go up there and, and make some really cool things happen. And I'm excited. I'm excited for what's to come. And I'm excited for our country to get whatever we ask for. That's what we're doing when we go to the ballots. We're, we're signing up for, you know, our future. Yeah. And I think uh, I think a lot of people don't understand just how big a decision that is. And yeah. they don't respect it. Well, you you know, you mentioned a lot of this descriptions, descriptions of your state of mind. You didn't you didn't uh, I didn't hear you say disappointed or um, cynical. Are they two things? Oh, I'm blatantly cynical, but that's been part of my character since long before anybody has been killed. That's honest. Um, I've been a jaded, I've been a jaded, cynical curmudgeon, starring in my own personal production of Curb Your Enthusiasm since I was eight years old. (laughs) Um, But you know, I've I've definitely lost a lot of faith in our political system. I think that's fair. I've gained a lot of faith in people. I've learned just how great people can be. Uh, I've learned. Yep. Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry about that. Um, I've learned, you know, I've met a lot of incredibly inspiring human beings. 
I've also met a lot of professional activists, human beings who um, who had a lot of money to make off of the shooting in Parkland. I watched them, you know, see their opportunity and seize it, and I trusted some. And I, um, you know, I watched the American political system have its fun with my hometown. So I, I feel like there's, you know, no way you can come out of this fresh-faced and optimistic. Mm, I know, hear that, you can't yeah. Even meet a, you can't meet a congressional intern and come out fresh-faced and optimistic. Because the second you look at our system for what it is, you know just how much of a cesspool it is. All right, Cameron, but, Cameron I want you to stop you there because i got to take the break here now. But you're on, I know you're on a roll. Uh, we're talking to Cameron Casey here on Recovery Radio. We have more with him. Straight ahead, don't go away. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martorano uh, with you. Our guest on the telephone, Cameron Casey. Uh, Cameron Casey is obviously notable as a survivor of the uh, shooting at his high school, Marjorie Stoneman. Uh, in, in Florida, Casey, uh, Cameron is going to join a group of uh, panelists in West Palm for a discussion of the mental health crisis, which is sponsored by Retreat July 24th. In West Palm, if you're down there, you're invited, just open to the public. If you can't make it, if you're listening somewhere else, they're going to stream the conference live on Facebook so you can you can watch it. The focus of it is the mental health issue, and um, I, I want to talk to uh, Cameron about that w- with its relationship to uh, social media. Um, Cameron, are you familiar with the television program HBO is running now called Euphoria? Yes, I haven't watched it yet. I've been eating up Chernobyl. I love it. Yeah, that's next on the list. Uh, uh, the interesting thing about the HBO show Euphoria is that it depicts it depicts high school uh, a high school environment loaded with risky behavior, all kinds of. And I'm not talking about mildly risky behavior. I'm talking about crazy risky behavior. And a recent article in the New York Times pointed out that while this is fiction, and certainly they're entitled to create that environment, the statistics or the data demonstrate that young people are, in fact, behaving in far less risky behaviors than ever before. Do you agree with that? Wow. I don't even know how to respond to that. Um, I I don't know. I wasn't around before. I, I do some pretty risky things myself, and I know my friends do, but I guess it's all relative. Um. You know, I'm I'm just a wee lad, and I hang out with with nice kids. I don't I don't hang out with any troublemakers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But again, that's all relative. You know, the people I hang out with in certain rooms would be the sweetest kids in the world, and then they meet other kids, and, and they look at us and they're like, "Wow, you guys go way too hard." You know, it's it's subjective. Let me let me um, let me let me put a finer point on it for you. If it's true, and we're going to have to accept it as it might not be, but if the numbers are correct, and young people, people your age and even younger, are engaging in fewer and fewer risky behaviors with, in terms of promiscuity and and actually in drug use and smoking and alcohol and all of that. Um, but really? Oh yeah, that's what the day. I know it sounds crazy, but that's what the oh, day. Oh wow! If it's gotten if it's gotten better now, I can't imagine what it was like back in the old days. I'll tell you that. The old days. Well, here's my point. My point is this: What then accounts for the fact that there is, there's no doubt about this, a crisis among your generation with regard to their mental health, and what's oh, its well, pr- promiscuous behavior and mental health? I mean, you know, there's a, there's a, there, there's certain ways you can connect the two, but children are going 
uh, my generation is completely losing our minds right now, not because of any promiscuity, but because of social media. We, our society has become, has basically just turned into a, uh, a world where everybody's an ad for themselves and for everything else. I mean, it, the, the world has gone completely insane. What? Social media taught us all that the, we have to create v- versions of our lives mm-hmm. and, and weave narratives and, and little stories um, to, um, to to really just paint who we are. Or who we'd like to be. Let me ask you a question. What's your social media look like? What what, what are you connected to? What so are you, what my are you social use? media used to be a place where I gave very politically driven and politically worded and distinctly thought out messages. And then I started to think, you know, maybe the world of politics isn't for me. We, uh, so in other words, you were you were tweeting out, uh, out some outspoken positions as you have on this program. I, I still do. I yeah. still do. I, I actually, I think the thing that has differentiated me from a lot of different students from my school, at least, is the fact that they all tweet and treat social media very diplomatically, mm-hmm. whereas I'll go out there with an unpopular opinion and smack you in the face with it for all I care. You know, if I if I never, if I'm always true to myself, I never have to think. I never have to worry. Yeah. Because if I do, if I wear my if I wear my opinions and I hold my views on my sleeve, then I think, you know, that's less effort I have to put into keeping up a facade. You know. Yeah. Well, see, Cameron. Yeah, see, Cameron, see. Cameron thinks some things that you don't think, and uh, but I also have a very different approach to social media than many people my age. The way people my age treat social media is this is an, a summary of who you are. So. Who you are, your character, your identity is determined by how you're able to weave your social media presence. Uh, if you're tweeting and Instagramming out, you know, the proper flow of things to the point where it looks like you are, you know, living this exciting, fun life, or you're so aloof on them that it maybe you're mysterious and you do your own thing. People, people form their characters really around how they interact to social media. And it's, it's not a bad thing. It doesn't make them a worse person. It just shows that that's really how we've been basing our identity. Mm-hmm. So whereas with my social media, I just kind of try to throw out a bunch of things that I think are funny <laughs> and a bunch of opinions. And, and when, I, when I feel inclined to, I will take it to a level where I discuss things from a very serious standpoint. Because mm-hmm. very often you'll find me discussing serious issues from a from a point of place of levity. But let me let me, know, let me ask you people, let me ask you a question with regard to your 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 social media activity. Do you, uh, you speak your mind? I hear you. But do you consider? Are you trying to be what's the word? An influencer? Are you trying to influence anybody? Or are you just telling people what you think? Uh, I mean, I, you know, if, if people hear my my takes on things and people hear my opinions and they want to agree with them, that's terrific. And if they don't want to agree with them, but they at least get a deeper understanding of somebody who disagrees with them, that's great too. You know, if you're a if you're a big Republican, big fan of guns, or a Democrat who's a big fan of guns, who knows? Mm-hmm. And you see my argument for gun control, you know, maybe I'll change your mind. Maybe you'll just say, oh, you know what? I don't agree with him, but I understand that where he's coming from. I understand why he thinks that, and mm-hmm. I guess we'll agree to disagree. That's enough for me. You know, that's the influence I want to have. Well, let me ask you. I mean, you got some unfortunate um, pushback at the beginnings. Uh, uh, it got pretty ugly, didn't it? Yeah, as all things on the Internet do. <laughs> and as all things with 
Democrats, Republicans, and gun control do. Things got a little nasty. What did you and your friends as survivors, I should say, make of the notion that you were somehow um, acting out a role? You, I guess they called you crisis actors. Did, did oh, you... the crisis actors thing is very funny. Basically, there's a, there's a class of people who believe that mass shootings like Parkland, Sandy Hook, and other ones were either staged by the government or have, you know, dark, twisted details that the government hides from us. They, they claim that the shooter from my school was some, some sort of an MKUltra individual, and we don't understand the, the situation. And a lot of people believe that certain friends of mine and I were, um, were crisis actors. We were paid to act as though we had been here for this staged tragedy and push liberal gun control messaging. Now, I took that as a very big compliment because I pride myself very much on public speaking. It's something that means a lot to me. So when people think that I'm good enough at it, that somebody's paying me, that means a lot. And I appreciated that. But, you know, the, the people denied the shooting. People said it was fake. Let me ask you a question. Did you, did, you, did you think that these were the actual thoughts of grown-up people? Or did you think they were just trolling the situation to stir the pot? <laughs> Yeah, that's a very interesting question, and it's a question that certainly shouldn't stop at this situation. You know, there, there are trolls in every part of politics right now, whether they be literal or social media. But I, th- I think it was a mixture. I think a lot of people were just goofing on us and thinking that they could, you know, have a little bit of fun at our expense. But it's crazy what people believe. It really is. I, I, I went to I went to 50-something cities this, this summer. You know, walking around, talking to people all around the country about gun control. I went to less cities than the rest of my comrades. But um, but I, I talked to a lot of people, people in the middle of the country, even people in big cities, people all over, believe things if they hear it from somebody who, who speaks to them. Now, if somebody sees the Alex Jones podcast and Alex Jones reflects something that they, you know, that they can relate to, They'll believe the frogs are gay because of fluoride. They'll believe that there's, you know, that Princess Hitler's living on the moon. They'll believe, they'll believe anything. So I think there are a lot of people out there who think we're crisis actors. A lot, actually. A very alarming number. It, on some level, it must have struck all of you as just completely hilarious and, and uh, bizarre. Yeah, 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 I, yeah. I can, I can... A lot of people were, were deeply affected by it, and they were very worried for my friends and I. They said, you know, how could you be dealing with such a horrible thing, people claiming that you were actors? And we appreciated the support, but we found we, most of the time we were just laughing our asses off. Yeah, it. yeah, that, that, that certainly makes sense to me. Were you ever, and again, I don't want to dwell on the period interest here, do you, were you ever at that point or even today – uh, concerned about your physical safety? Yes, very uh, multiple times. You, it, it's, it's happened a couple times. We've been we've been in situations where we've had to look around and say, you know what, maybe there's a chance that, that these five people who all suspiciously walked into the room mm-hmm. in very, very right. similar times right. in this very, very, very red state might have some sort of desire to hurt us. Yep, yep. But, you know, we also were political people going out there talking about politics and talking about guns and people don't like that. So, you know, I think a lot of it was very natural and real fright. My house was swatted. My friend Sarah's house was swatted. My friend David's house was swatted. Like there were, there were real consequences. Explain squatting for people who don't know what you mean. Squatting is when somebody, I don't even know what to call it. They, they call in a fake ransom or whatever. They, they call the police and say they're at your house and then they send the SWAT team over there and, break into your house and people have been killed by swatting. Yep. Very messed up thing to do. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's one tremendous of the, waste of, of, of 
taxpayer money is yeah. not a good thing. Yeah, it's, a, it's one of the worst practical jokes I've ever heard. Let me ask you about your parents. Are they supportive of this or would they – you rather just go to college and get an education? My parents are very supportive of this and they're very supportive of me going to college and getting a, a um, an education as well. My parents are very, very, very um, supportive and, and always have been did really everything. Cameron Casey, our guest. We have more with Cameron straight ahead. This is Recovery Radio. Don't go away. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. We have been speaking with Cameron Casey. He, of course, is a, a, a very outspoken young man. He is also a survivor of the shooting at the Marjorie Stoneman uh, High School in Parkland, Florida, back in February 14th of uh, 2018. As a result of that um, event, he w- went on to become uh, um, a very vocal advocate for gun control. He uh, was one of the founders of uh, the March for Our Lives, and uh, he, he's now uh, settled into uh, a situation where he still is very outspoken on, on a number of issues, uh, not least of which is the mental health of his generation. Uh, before we get into the, a couple of more of your thoughts about social media and its pluses and minuses, you had a very um, um, notable face-to-face with uh, Senator Marco Rubio who is the senator from the state of Florida, obviously, over the issue of gun control in the wake of the shooting. Um, how did you – we see politicians all the time evade questions and answer. They give you answers to questions you didn't ask. You had a similar situation with him on live television where, where he just couldn't answer the simple question you'd ask him. What, what were you thinking in that moment? Oh, um, you know, I wanted to go up and make the senator who I thought was responsible for all this horror, you know, hold him accountable. I wanted to go up there and say, you know what, this guy better know what he's done. This guy better know what his apathy has done to our country. I was at the top of my head. I mean, I don't know. I was in a, I was in a state at that time that I can't even describe. I just went up there and I said wherever I could, and I, I, I wanted to go up there, and I wanted Senator Rubio. I wanted people to see just how, how awful I thought this guy was. All right, and so you were angry. You certainly can understand that. Your question was very simple. You asked if he was going to uh, to uh, to announce publicly that he would no longer accept donations from the gun lobby, right? Yes. And and how and he 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 refused. He didn't do that. Uh, no, he said he would not. Yeah. Well, you know what? I've always wanted to talk to you about that because uh, you, you didn't accomplish much, as you know, but you did demonstrate how you're supposed to question a politician. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's get back to this issue of um, social media. Now, you you tweet, right? You have I don't know if you're still on Facebook or not. Um, do, you, do you have an Instagram account? What are the other? What are the I other? I do have an Instagram account. I have an Instagram and a Twitter, and I got rid of Facebook because I think Facebook is, I mean, they're all garbage, but I think Facebook is like the real pinnacle of it. Right. Well, most people, um, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, uh, right, you know. okay. And uh, that's pretty much the range that you, the, the people you know, your friends also have that kind of array of social media connections. Connection. I mean, that's how we, that's how we all work. You know, that's, that's how people my age are. We have social media. It's how we interact with each other. Yeah. And it's been with you your whole life now. You're the generation that grew up immediately with it there was nothing to adopt it uh, it was it was there so looking i know it's very early on for any of us to come to a conclusion about whether this new technology is a 
a, a, a force for good or, or a force for not good. How do you feel about it? Can it go either way? What, what do you think about? No, I, I think that it could have been a force for good, but the the it, it was designed by people who wanted it to be addicting, and it worked. So, Social media was designed to get us addicted to it. The way the colors in our phone work, it's all designed to be the you know the best possible thing to look at and, and um, interact with. It's all it's all a marketing gimmick. Well, all right. If if, that, if that's the way you feel, why do you have a Twitter account? Why do you have an Instagram um, account? Are you addicted? Really, really, just because? Yeah, I'd say. So when we hear that there is a mental health crisis among young people, and it's true. We have suicide rates now among people in your age cohort that are rising all the time. And I know you're probably aware of this. Suicide's the second leading cause of death among young people. You have just indicted social media. Oh, yeah. Social media is, is pretty much, I'd say, the main reason. If you were to... Technology in general. I mean, right. we, we're human beings who are being raised. My, my generation... Gen Z. You know, the millennials really grew up with technology, but, you know, there were a couple years that... Um, they had a learning curve. You didn't. Exactly. We grew up with an iPad in our hands. That's right. They, they, had, um, a, they had a small learning curve. You had none. That's a remarkable difference. But, so you're going to sit on a health, uh, a health crisis panel in a couple of weeks, and there are going to be young people in the room. Do you advocate that they unplug? Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. I think that um, I think that people need to start treating social media as something that you do to offer your presence to the world. If anybody wants to look at it and see, you know, I, I've met some great friends through social media. Don't get me wrong; it's not all negative. If I could snap it away and, and just make it, you know, just completely erase it from existence, I'd do it in a second. But, you know, good things have happened to me because of it. And I'd say people need to start looking at social media, looking at social media as something that you can do on your phone when you're bored and not a fundamental part of your human identity. And it, it has really become that. In the, in the aftermath of the shooting, it, it was a, a, a help to you, to you guys, the survivors, or, or it made things worse? What do you think? I think in the long run, social media has caused a lot of what has, has led to emotional problems for me. Um, but it was the only way, I mean, it was the only way we were able to get our message out. Not this time, I mean, we would have been able to reach the country, but never in, in as clear and interactive a way as we did with social media. Social media is definitely, obviously, yeah, it's very, what we were able to do. Yeah, it's an incredibly strong bond. Uh, Cameron, we're, our, our phone connection is getting a little shaky, but we're out of time anyway. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for being on that panel. Those of you in the Palm Beach area, July 24th, Retreat Behavioral Health in West Palm Beach. You're invited. The public is. It'll be streamed on Facebook as well. The topic is Mental Health Crisis, Protecting Our Youth. Um, Cameron, good luck in in, uh, in in college. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Please let me know if you have any follow-ups. I'm happy to get back on. Let you know. Great. If we missed anything. Appreciate you. Thanks. Right. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, man. Running running over to a meeting with school right now. Actually, wish me luck. Okay. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Take care. Bye bye, everybody. Take we'll care. be uh, look for us look for us again on Recovery Radio. Bye bye. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.